Thank you for joining us for episode two of Beloved by God, your weekly podcast that glorifies God through the power of personal testimonies. You're about to hear the incredible testimony of Russell Gibson, a powerful man of God, horticulturist, father, and now my friend. Let us open in prayer. Lord, thank you for Russell's strength, resilience, and his servant's heart. I ask that you bless him and his entire family. I ask that you continue to use Russell's testimony to change hearts, save lives, and encourage us all. Amen. Let us begin. My name is Russell Gibson. I am a great, very grateful believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, I entered CR probably around 2007, and I had some history with recovery before that, mostly in a group called Al-Anon. But CR was my passion for many years. This is what I think about Celebrate Recovery. I've, I've had this thought for a long time, is that church on Sunday is for people that don't want to go to hell. Celebrate Recovery is for people who have been to hell and don't want to go back. Accepting recovery, for me especially, was a very difficult thing to do because I had a mindset that I was unwilling to give up. And that mindset was, is that it's my way or the highway. I know best. I can fix this. I can fix that. And then I ran into addiction in my family and I quickly discovered I didn't know much at all, especially about doing life. So it required a new way of thinking. And since then, I've run across a quote that actually comes out of the the, uh, AA Big Book. It's in the appendix, the spirituality appendix. It describes the transformation that has to happen to not only myself, I believe, but to anyone. And it's a quote by a guy named Herbert Spencer. And he says, there is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. The short version of that, the Russell's paraphrase of it is, I've got my mind made up and I don't care what you say, I'm not going to change it. And once I was willing to look at life from a different perspective, I was able to accept that there is a different way to live life. And celebrate recovery, willing to accept a different perspective, and thereby my response to reality has become different, dare I say even healthier, but only because I have been willing to accept suggestions and the Word of God as truth. Uh, I'm going to kind of quickly go through my early years. There was a question that I began to ask myself only recently is, when did I lose the ability to be present? I think that becomes critical because in order to commune with God, one must be present because he is, after all, the great I am. And at some point, I, I, I lost that. So I begin to look back into my early years. My dad 
who worked away most of my early life. In fact, all of my life until after I got out of the service. My dad was capable of expressing love, showing love. My mom, who was home, always seemed emotionally disconnected. And I'm not sure really if it was her or perhaps I was the one that was emotionally disconnected or or maybe both of us. But uh, I never felt extremely close to mom, although she was the one that was in my life the most. Dad, whom expressed love so well and whom I trusted and loved dearly, and I still do. One day when I was probably five or six years old, I was walking by and he was working on a lawnmower and he asked me to hold the end of the spark plug wire while he pulled the, the handle. And of course it shocked me, probably knocked me off my feet, I don't remember, but here was this man who loved me dearly, and he did that. And when I look back, I begin to have a lot of trust issues, of course. And uh, I think it was at that point that I began to lose my ability to be present because I wasn't able to focus so much on the present as I was, I wonder how this will harm me in the future. And then my life, in general, was this huge paradox because my mother's family from North Louisiana lived in this Norman Rockwell country environment of creeks and pine trees and hills and a subsistence type farm, close family, zero alcohol, uh, Piney Woods Baptist Church. Uh, my grandmother would read the Bible to us at night. Uh, we went to church three times a week, worked in the gardens, ran the hills, ran the creek bottoms, and just had a, kind of a Tom Sawyer-type life there. And then 75% of my time, I was being raised on the West Bank in New Orleans, which is a war zone. And I learned to lie, cheat, steal, and fight. All of that was going on until I was probably around 10 years old. And I had been going to the Baptist church. And one night, the family announces that we were going to change churches. We were going to all become a different denomination, very different denomination. Spending the first 10 years of my life uh, in Sunday school, gluing little pieces of colored macaroni onto a piece of paper trying to build Noah's Ark, all of a sudden I'm in a church where they're speaking a foreign language. The men were wearing dresses or what appeared to be dresses to me. They were ringing bells, burning incense, and I promptly announced, I am not going. I remember my dad coming into my room that night, leaning against the doorway, talking to me about it, and I told him I wasn't going. Well, he started crying, and I said, okay, I'll go. So that began a not only an unhealthy church experience, but a rejection of God. So by the age of 13, I remember announcing as I was riding my bicycle that I no longer believed in God. And then after that comes the drinking at the age of 15 and the use of marijuana and then hallucinogenics, a downward spiral in general. I was in college my very first semester and I flunked out. 
my draft notice beat my grades to the house, so I went and enlisted in the Coast Guard. They sent me overseas to an island called Guam, and I lived there for two years traveling. I was in aviation, so I was traveling throughout the Pacific, probably 10 different islands, uh, 10 different countries. And I remember going to these islands where people were wearing nothing but loincloths, grass skirts, and I noticed no matter where I went, people had a concept of God. That always stuck with me, that no matter where I went, no matter how remote, people contemplated the existence of something bigger than themselves. And then uh, I ended up, you know, leaving, coming back to the States and uh, with a whole different mindset. Two promises I made to myself were that I would never have another crossword with my parents. I would never disrespect them again. And the other promise was that I would go to college and I would get my degree. I ended up getting a degree in, in horticulture. On the very first day of my new college career, I met my wife and we got married a, a year later and we started a family after we uh, graduated. So here I am raising a family. We're entering into the 1980s, and we're very busy raising children. We're both working, and life is going along well. Three children becoming teenagers. I still had no need nor respect for God because I thought I was doing life okay, especially if everybody would just listen to me. And, and by the way, I had totally stopped any kind of marijuana and any kind of drug uses. I was socially drinking and making a fool of myself at times. Again, I thought I had life under control. And then we entered the 90s. There was a lot of stress in the family and um, a lot of resentments began to develop. We began to have communication problems in the marriage. At about the same time, our middle child began to have a drug problem and that began to infect, affect the entire family unit. We were just going downhill fast. My wife, bless her heart, uh, is the one who introduced us to, begin to introduce us to recovery. It was via a uh, secular route, but nevertheless, we were arriving. And at about the first time that I ever read the 12 steps, I was impressed. However, steps one, two, and three, especially two and three, were a problem because I didn't have a God. But I could see that they were a pathway to peace. So I left secular recovery and began to pursue God. And later, my uh, route was validated by a fella. One time, I was listening to him at an open AA meeting, and he was talking about his journey to, towards God, and he had tried everything, drumming and uh, chanting and whatnot. And he was visiting with a shaman in Mississippi, and the shaman got frustrated with the fella and said, Terry, why don't you just return to the God of your ancestors? And that is exactly what I had decided to do in my own journey. Yeah, I, I never even gave it a, any other thought other than returning to the God of my ancestors, which was that little Pineywood Baptist Church. And I quickly joined a Bible study group, had a burning bush moment where I received the Holy Spirit, and 
the very next morning, I woke up a totally different person. And I went back to recovery now that I had a God, and I began to work the steps. And then I joined Celebrate Recovery and began to work from a Christian perspective, which was one of the best decisions I ever made. It's kind of funny, you know, uh, there were all these seeds planted along the way when I look back. There's, of course, the parable about the different seeds where they fell and uh, the, the rocks, the uh, thorns, and the, uh, and the fertile ground. But being a horticulturist, I had to overthink this and consider myself such a hot mess that uh, I wasn't just a normal seed. And the, the truth is, there, there are some seeds in order to germinate, they got to travel through a, uh, the digestive tracts of certain animals before they could ever stand a chance of germinating. And I often think I was that kind of a seed. I was a wet, hot mess at the bottom of a manure pile, but on the fertile ground of Celebrate Recovery. And uh, that's how I like to look at my past. One of the things I also quickly learned about my God is what is his character and what does he expect of me? How does he talk to me? Which is often through Bible study and small groups. And uh, I've never heard God's audible voice, but he does speak to me quite often through imperfect people, which we all are, whether we admit it or not. And so that's how I tend to get most of my direction from God. One of the characteristics of my God is, is that he's sovereign. I can argue with him, but I don't get to trump whatever it is he expects for me to do. And I accept that, and I like that. And the truth is, I need a sovereign God. I don't need one I can bargain with. I've come to have some very core beliefs. I believe that we were created to be in relationship vertically and horizontally. In other words, created to be in relationship with God and with those around us. That's a firm belief. I believe that relationship is best manifested by serving each other. I think we were created to serve one another and to serve God. And um, it's been very satisfying and and rewarding to lead my life in such a manner now to where it's God first and he wants me to serve. So the thing I have to discern is am I discerning God's will or Russell's will and I that's steps that I take very seriously when I am feeling called to maybe go in the uh, different direction. As many of you know, I was very involved in Celebrate Recovery in various so-called leadership positions. And uh, at some point, I decided that my ideas were going to become stale. My zeal to lead would begin to lessen. And so I started thinking about what can I do next? I had learned that If I wait, instead of trying to sort through decisions in my own head, if I decide to wait, that the word would come to me one day, just like it did for uh, CR leadership. And uh, so one day out of the blue, I get a call from a local drug rehab center, drug and alcohol rehab center, asking me to give a layman, a uh, man on the street, perspective on... Oh, spirituality, (laughs) especially from a Christian point of view. And in fact, they wanted it weighted very heavily 
from that perspective. It's like a light bulb went off, and I said, yes, that's what you're calling me to do next, is to go into the secular world and let people know that the Christian perspective, without beating them on the head with it, is a number one way to do recovery. You have to understand that a lot of people in recovery are either angry with God or don't know God. They have a distorted view of God, and it all goes back to a willingness to change your perspective that I opened up with. If you're willing to to look at the world from a different perspective, then this change can begin to happen. Um, and I've been doing that now since 2015, I believe. This is 2023. I still do it. It's still a passion of mine. And I don't see myself ever abandoning that in the near-time future. But today, in my own personal journey, what I'm focusing a lot on is grief. I don't waller in grief, but I study it. And I believe in the five basic cycles of grief which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and last but not least, acceptance. So kind of a double-edged sword is the, when you're a student of grief, is that you think you know grief and you got this. But what I learned is that uh, you can read every dictionary in every language in the world about the definition of grief, but some words you just don't know them until you do them. And that's very true with, with grief. Recovery has taught me to pay a lot of attention to language that we use. There are a lot of words that in life that have either been distorted or they have been hijacked. One of the words that people use, and they're doing the best they can when they console you, is the word closure. When I lost my son in 2008, I coined the phrase, or maybe copied the phrase, I'm not sure, that closure is a myth. And I had qualified it by saying, especially if you lose a child, closure is a myth. But people say that, and I accept that they're doing the best they can with language. Greeting anyone when they're in grief is, is, is difficult. And uh, again, people are just doing the best they can. But that was one word that, that, that struck me, is that one day, Russell, you'll get closure on this. And then about a year ago, my wife died. And that thought came to mind about closure because it was said to me again. And then I discovered, why would I want closure? What I have to do is decide what will that relationship look like in the future because that relationship's never going away. I don't want it to go away. So how does it look healthy in the future? And I believe that's, that's the key for my own grief journey. Because uh, those memories are, there's too many pleasant memories. And uh, another thing I learned about grief is uh, that 
Well, when I lost my parents and my grandparents, I lost part of my past. When I lost my child, I lost part of my future. When I lost my wife, I lost my present. Losing a child hurts, but having a spouse for 49 years, grief is a lot harder because I lost my present. God takes one man, one woman, and joins them, and they become one. When you lose one, all of a sudden you're walking around at 50%. Again, my God is the great I am, and in order to commune with him, I need to be present. But I had lost it. And so it, it, was, it was very difficult. But I'm glad I made the, uh, had the realization that that was part of my own journey. And so I began to focus on how to become present again. It's been a big help. It's been one year now, or actually 24 days short of a year. The journey's going pretty well. I don't waller in the grief. Instead, I celebrate her life. I celebrate my son's life. I'm in... Acceptance. Talking about words that mean things are have been hijacked and there's a distorted meanings of them is uh, some words that come to mind are, are meek, the word meek. For a guy like me who was raised to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you got life, boy, just do it, is that meek indicated a character of cowardice-ness and um, always associated the word with not having courage or uh, being a coward, a weakling. But yet we look at the first beatitude and the first step of uh, Celebrate Recovery, especially its first principle of the eight, and we see blessed are the meek. How could that be a blessing? Well, it caused me to research the word, and I found out that the word meek has certainly been hijacked because the original meaning of the word meek was used by the Greeks to describe the perfect war horse. Meek, the actual definition is uh, power under control. I can do power under control. I don't mind describing myself as meek. And there's just little things like that that, that, that helped me a lot. Uh, recovery has really, really forced me to pay attention to language. Um, the word intimacy, for example. Uh, intimacy is another word that's been hijacked. We think of intimacy and we automatically think of uh, sex. But the truth is, intimacy is the measure we assign to any relationship that even if we're passing somebody in the grocery store pushing our buggies and we make eye contact, that in itself was a measure of intimacy. Intimacy is how willing am I to be transparent with you? And that's the beauty of recovery. Uh, my recovery family knows a lot more about me than my belly button family. 
And that's because I am more willing to be transparent. I am willing to give them a greater measure of intimacy. And I think that also goes back to our purpose of creation, to be in relationship. I think Adam and Eve messed that up for us when they introduced shame. We begin to become more and more or less transparent. And so I've reclaimed, that's another word I've perhaps talk about. Anything that we do in recovery, and I'm going to close with this, anything that we do in, in recovery, you can find it's already been done or suggested in the Bible. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible is, the, is in John chapter 11, and it's the, uh, the, the raising of Lazarus. And this is my uh, paraphrase translation of that story, which I do believe is not a, it's not a parable, it is a, it is a recording of history. And uh, basically we're, we're told that Jesus is on a walkabout, him and his apostles, and they're wandering around the country, and they get word that Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, is sick and needs, urgently needs Jesus' presence. Well, Jesus lollygags around and continues on his walkabout, but eventually he does show up. Martha runs out and meets him, and he learns that Lazarus is not only dead, but that he has been dead for four days. He was so dead he stunk. Jesus walks on over and calls out Lazarus. Lazarus, come out of the grave. Now, Lazarus was all in um, burial cloths, and to this moment in history, Jesus had never performed a miracle as great as this. He rose Lazarus from the dead. And like I say, Lazarus came out. Everybody's hooping and hollering and going hallelujah and how could this be? And they're clapping, they're jumping up and down. They're all excited that Jesus did this. And even us, when we read the story, we're all excited that we missed the very last thing Jesus said after the raising of Lazarus. Jesus turned to his friends, his family, and he said, y'all unwrap him. He probably didn't say y'all, but again, this is my paraphrase. And what that tells me is that there's no doubt that whatever your struggle is, that Jesus can raise you from the dead. And if you're anything like me, you were dead, dead, dead. You were so dead you stunk. But yet Jesus will raise you up. But then he gives us, the family, the friends, he gives us some ownership in the process. He allows us to participate in the process in that he says, y'all unwrap him. So yes, he will raise you from the dead, but if you're wrapped up in shame, if you're wrapped up in grief, if you're wrapped up in addiction, wrapped up in low self-esteem, if you're wrapped up in self-harm, if you're, I mean, just fill in the blank. If you're wrapped up in, it is the privilege and obligation of your family and friends, your fellow members in Celebrate Recovery. They do the unwrapping. God raises you from the dead. They speak about the gift of despair. And uh, yes, despair brought me into recovery. 
but I'm eternally grateful for that gift of despair that led me down this road. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I wanted to say, Russell, I'm very moved by your testimony. I heard a lot of just processing of grief and processing of of life and giving and surrender, surrendering things to God. And there's really two questions I, I had for you. And, and one of those questions is, what would you tell somebody um, that was at their rock bottom or tell somebody that is, is feeling really weak in their faith? What would be something that you would tell them to encourage them? I have a simple statement that I often ask people when, when they're saying that to me. And it's simply, how is that working out for you? Good. How is that working out for you? And uh, it forces them to uh, give me an honest answer, and then we we go from there. That's really good. And then um, the next question would be, what would be your life verse if you had one um, that was your, your favorite or something that would be, you know, uh, written on your heart? What would it be? As you heard in my testimony, uh, I, I look a lot at the, uh, the characteristics of my God and also what He expects of me. And uh, I need a big God. And the verse in the Bible that fascinates me the most is John 1, 1. In the beginning... The Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In that little statement, we're told that before the beginning of time, and I believe time was invented for us, that God already existed. Also, it speaks of the complexity of the Trinity, which is beyond comprehension. Thank you for listening in. Please join us next week for episode three, where I'll be interviewing my brother in Christ, Nathan. Listen in to hear how God transformed his life of drugs and homelessness into fatherhood, leadership, and starting a multi-million dollar business that honors God and promotes redemption. To support our ministry, please consider helping us at www.patreon.com slash belovedbygod. Please share and subscribe for the latest episodes. And remember, God loves you, and so do I.